This morning I've been in this series called Locally Owned and Operated, and we've been looking at the local church and what does that mean to us. And today I want to talk to you about an issue, a subject that has a, it's just a burden of mine in ministry, especially when I meet with people, I have conversations with people about this issue of identity and who I am in Christ. Because here's, here's the powerful thing. If you know who you are in Christ, you're unstoppable. If you know what God says about you, then you're unstoppable. And so I want to talk to you this morning about this issue of who you are in Christ or your identity or what God says about you. So if you have your Bibles, your electronic devices, uh, you can go to Version and follow the sermon notes. If you search for a live event, we'll show up. Uh, but where we're going to be today is, is 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll look at verses 4 through 10. And I want to talk to you about this issue of identity. Now listen, um, I, you, you probably used them the same as I have. Uh, those, those name tags that they give you at parties, whether it's a social event, uh, whether it's a church event, whether it's a business event, to where, you know, those little cheap paper name tags that says, hello, my name is, and they were actually invented in 19, uh, 1959, and we're still using them today. And they're still very popular today, to where you go to an event, and they give you the name tag, hello, my name is, and you put your name there, Charlie, or Carol, or Bob, or Sue, or, or what, whatever, and oh, and by the way, in case you're wondering where is the very best place to place that name tag, it would be even with your right shoulder so that it's normal for eye contact when you go to shake someone's hand, that it's normal for your eyes to go there for you to be able to see the name tag. So it's, it's obvious to where it's not hidden or covered up or, hey, what was your name and that whole awkward deal. And so when you look at a name, a name's a powerful thing, right? I mean, there are some people when they get famous, they change their name. There's some uh, uh, stars that will go by one name because they are so popular they just go by one name um, some people have nicknames and some people get nicknames in childhood and guess what they like that nickname and they continue that ch that nickname all the way through another group of people that got a nickname in childhood and they didn't like it too much and so they're trying to live the rest of their life getting away from that nickname and it bugs them when they meet people from their past or from their childhood still calling them by that name a name is a powerful thing and you'll hear some people use words like like, I don't, I don't want to do anything to hurt my good name. I don't want to do anything to hurt my family's name. I don't want to do anything to destroy my name or my family's name. Let me ask you this. Just emotionally, what would happen? I'm not asking you to, act, to answer this out loud. But what would happen if I gave you, hello, my name is, tag, and said, you know what? Write in what identifies you. I'm not talking about your proper name. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about your proper name. I'm not talking about a nickname. I'm talking about what name are you carrying that identifies you? You know, there's some people that would write in names like broken, damaged goods, failure, not good enough. Liar, cheater, adulterer, depressed, divorced, fear, unforgiven. I'm telling you, if that's one of your names, if that's one of the things that you're carrying. Or maybe a different name that I haven't even described or said, then you're carrying false identity. 
And when you don't know who you are in Christ, and when you carry false identity, it sets you up for failure for the rest of your life. And today I want to talk to you that if God was to fill in your name, if God was to give you four names is what we'll look at, and how he identifies you, what would they be? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We're only going to read 9 and 10. We'll walk through the other verses. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you could show others the goodness of God, for he, he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity, in other words, guess what? Before you met Christ, you had false identity. Before you met Christ, you had no identity. He says, and you had no identity as, as a people. Now, watch this, now that you're a Christian, now that you come to faith in Christ, now you are God's p- people. In other words, you are a son or daughter of God. You're not a slave. You're not a trying to work your way into heaven. You're not trying to live a perfect enough life. You're not trying to be good enough. That he says, guess what? You're God's child, and you're a son, and you're a daughter, and you're in the family. And nothing you could do once you're in the family can get you out of the family. And he goes on and says, and once you receive no mercy, and now you receive God's mercy. Four things that if God was to take, hello, my name is, for you, for a believer, the first thing he would write in there, hello, my name is, accepted. You're accepted. You're totally and completely accepted. Verse 9, again in 1 Peter chapter 2, says, but you are not like that. Watch this. And you're a chosen people. There are a lot of people spend their entire life trying to gain acceptance. I mean, wouldn't you agree with me? People do some crazy things just trying to get acceptance of people. Remember when you were a kid and someone would double-dog dare you? And you'd do it just to try to fit in, just to try to be accepted, just to have friends. See, there are people that live there, even Christians, and that's what I'm burdened about this morning. There are people that live their entire life just trying to be accepted. And so we want acceptance from our parents. We want acceptance from our peers. We want acceptance from our spouses, from people that we work with. Can you believe this? We even want acceptance from people that we envy or we don't like. I mean, when you look at this issue of acceptance, you realize that it drives people to do all kinds of crazy things. It can affect the, the clothes you buy or the clothes you wear, the car you drive, the home you live in, the profession, the profession that you choose. That, that it can drive people. This issue of acceptance can drive people to do all kinds of crazy things. I mean, I mean here a while back, it's many years ago, um, we had a, a man in our church, and he accepted Christ late in life, and he was very, very successful, made a lot of money in his life, and he was retiring. He now lives in another state. And um, we, we met for coffee to say our goodbyes. And so we're, we're sitting in Starbucks, and we're having coffee, and, and uh, he looks over at me, kind of shocked me, and he says, you know what? Let me just tell you this. I hated what I did for a living every day of my life. I'm like, how could you say that? I mean, 
You're like very successful. You made a lot of money. And, and so then, then I said, so the question is, why did you go into that profession? If you hated your profession, if you hated your job your entire life, why did you do it? He said, I had an unpleasable mom. Nothing I could ever do was good enough. And I thought that if I go into this profession, if I follow this career, that one day she'll accept me. And one day she'd say I'm good enough. And it never came. I'm angry at her. Here I'm a grown man in retirement. I'm angry at her. Wasted my life. May have made a lot of money, but it was not a profession I would have chosen. Just trying to get her acceptance. See, we all want that feeling, right? We all want that feeling that I'm accepted, that I'm okay. And God says, guess what? He chose you. I mean, for me, one of the happiest days of my life is when my wife chose me, when my wife accepted my wedding proposal and when she said yes to me. We love that feeling of being accepted. We love that feeling of being chosen. And Simon Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that guess what? You're, you were chosen by God. And that should boost your self-esteem esteem this morning. And you should understand that you are chosen by him. But my burden is this, that there are many people that have accepted Christ. There are many people that have received Christ. And they've never realized that Christ has accepted you. In, in other words, they picture God as like some unpleasable parent. I'm telling you. You cannot earn salvation. You don't deserve salvation. And you cannot live a perfect enough life. But a lot of people say, you know what? I just got this unpleasable God. And that I have to be a good girl or a, or a good boy just for him to accept you. And I'm telling you, he's already accepted you. He would write on your name tag when you're in Christ that you're accepted. And second thing is this. Hello, my name is. First, hello, my name is accepted. Second thing is this. Hello, my name is valuable. Not only am I accepted, I have value. I am valuable. I mean, Scripture says, Peter said, that you are God's very own possession. And so he says, not only have you been accepted, but that you're valuable. So what is your, what is, how much are you worth? Not your net worth, but your self-worth. How much are you worth? How, do you, how does one determine that? How does one determine how much anything is worth? Well, the first thing is this. How you determine how much something is worth is how much is someone willing to pay for Excuse me. How much is someone willing to pay for it? I mean, a lot of us, we think our houses are worth a lot more than they really are, right? And so what determines the value of something is this, is how much is someone willing to pay for it? And we're going through that with a couch right now. We bought a really awesome couch in 1993. Yeah, we still have it. It's like an awesome couch. And and we, we raised our girls, you know, on that couch watching TVs and movie nights. And, and we moved that couch uh, to Pueblo with us. We had some of our first tr uh, trustee meetings on that couch. The uh, fact is, that was the couch that the elders sat on when they invited me to be senior pastor here at Fellowship of the Rockies. And so when you're a sentimental person, it just has a lot of sentimental value, right? And so 
one of us, Karen, is having a little... She's having more difficulty getting rid of the couch than me. I'm like, let, I mean, 1993, we definitely got our money's worth out of it. It's time to move on. We'll just put it, kick it to the curb and let's move on. Well, she put it on Craigslist. And what we're, we're learning a lot. One thing we're learning is nobody wants to pay her for the couch what she thinks it's worth. And so it, it's kind of emotional to her. The other thing, too, it's interesting the phone calls that we're getting. We got an oceanographer contacted us and said he would love our couch, that if we would give him our banking information, <laughs> yeah, so he could deposit money into our account, that a buddy would show up an hour later and pick up the couch. We even had a missionary from Africa call us. She's saving lives over in Haiti, and uh, she wants to pay us more than the couch is worth, even more than we're asking for it, if we simply give her our banking information so she can deposit some money and then she'll send a friend to come pick up the couch. So the first thing that determines value is, is what is someone willing to pay for it? It depends on what someone's willing to pay for. The other thing is this, it depends who owned it in the past, right? I mean, you take our couch, for instance, if Elvis Presley had owned our couch, it'd be, a lot of, it'd be worth a lot of money. If, if a rock star, a movie star, uh, someone famous, a president, if someone famous owned our couch instead of us, then it'd be worth a lot of money because of who owned it in the, in the past. Now, based upon these two things, what is your self-worth? Who owns you? How much are they willing to pay for you? Because the scripture says this, you've been bought and paid for. By Christ. So how much are you worth? Who do you belong to? Because what Simon Peter is trying to help them understand is this. You belong to God. How much did he pay? How much did God pay for your soul? His one and only son. He sent his son who was perfect and blameless to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And gave his life. Listen, let me tell you something. The cross proves your value. That you're a child of God. You're a son. And you're a daughter of God. And you're not a slave trying to earn your way into heaven. Trying to be perfect enough or good enough. And then Simon Peter goes on and helps us understand the illustration of our value. And says, and God is a part of a, a building project. He's, he's building a spiritual house. He's building a, he's building a church. And you're, you're, you're in this building project, and you're in the family of God. And you're one of what he says, one of the living stones. Watch this, verse 4. He says, so you're coming to Christ, who is a living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people. Stop right there. This, this, we cannot miss this. Okay. He's talking about Jesus, because who's the cornerstone? Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation. He's talking about Jesus, so watch this. And then he says, he was rejected by people. See, some of you on this issue of acceptance, you believe that if you can just be perfect enough, if you can be good enough, 
you can get that individual's acceptance. They'll finally accept you. And if you can be perfect enough, if you can be good enough, if you can be a perfect wife, a perfect husband, perfect child, perfect bo- uh, employee, perfect boss, that if you can just be perfect enough, then guess what? They'll finally accept me. That's a false belief. Jesus Christ was perfect, was he not? Says people rejected him. There are people, they're going to reject you no matter how perfect you are. And guess what? It is more their problem than it is your problem. Because you're a child of God. You're acceptable. You've been accepted. And you have value. And so he goes on. But he was chosen by God for great honor. And you, so Jesus is the cornerstone, and you are living stones. That God is building into a spiritual temple. What's more, you're his holy priest through the mediation of Jesus Christ. You offer spiritual sacrifices to, to please God. Do you realize you can bless the heart of God? Do you realize you can please God? And he's saying, now listen to a Jew, Jewish audience in their day, this was earth shattering. When he says, and guess what? You're priest. See, Old Covenant theology, Old Testament theology, where the priests were set apart. The priests did, did special things. And all of a sudden, he goes in and says, says, you now have a privilege that was once only reserved for priests. So Jesus is the, is the cornerstone. And we're the living stones. And God is building his church. And Jesus is the, it's Jesus is the foundation. See, a foundation is critical to any building project. The fact is, years back, we bought this facility in, in 2000, and this was once two theaters. And so we knew that one theater would never be big enough for us at the church. And so we wanted to turn this in, into two, from two rooms into one big room. So we got the architects in here. We got the engineers in here. We looked at this big load-bearing wall, and we says, can we, can we knock down this wall have two rooms? And they says, well, we don't know. It just depends. Well, what does it depend on? They says, oh, it, it depends on one thing, the foundation. That we need to pull some drawings. We need to look at some things. And it depends on the, the footers. It depends on how deep they are. It depends on how wide they are. And so what it really depends on is the foundation. If the foundation is strong enough, then we can span this 90-foot uh, span to support the roof without it falling in. And they looked at the drawings and they found out, guess what? The foundation is strong enough, we can do it. You know what that told me? The foundation of a physical building is critical to the success of that building. The same thing is true in your life. What is your foundation? What is your life? What is your life built on? I mean, I mean, Scripture says that it's just kind of a crazy deal that you're a living stone. I mean, you don't think of stones being alive, right? I mean, you think of stones being dead, and then living stone is like, to me, it's like a contradiction in terms like jumbo shrimp or or hot ice or any of those things, governmental ethics or or whatever. (laughs) It's like a contradiction in terms, right? When you look at this issue of living stones, but when, when you give your life to Christ, you were once dead, and now you're alive. 
And so what are you building your life on? Have you, I mean, have you ever thought of this? If you were to found, if you were to find a living stone and it could talk, wouldn't it be worth a lot of money? Wouldn't it be precious? Wouldn't you be parading that thing around? Said so you have value. You have value. You're accepted. And you're valuable. And you're like a, a living stone. Third thing is this. Hello, my name is. Hello, my name is accepted. Hello, my name is valuable. Hello, my name is qualified. I'm qualified. I'm qualified to serve. I'm qualified to do ministry. I'm, watch this. He says, verse 9. He says, you're a royal priest. In other words, God says, not me. God says, you're a priest. God says, I'm a priest, and you're a priest. Now, depending upon your spiritual background, this may be kind of a scary term for you, or this may be a confusing thing for you to where you've come out of a spiritual background to where the priests were like set apart. The priest did functions that, that you are not allowed to do, that you couldn't do. If the priest went to God on your behalf, they interceded for you, and they did all these things that you weren't allowed to do. Well, I'm just telling you, that is Old Covenant theology. That is Old Testament theology. See, in the Old Testament, it was only the priest that had rights, privileges, or responsibility to go directly to God. They would go directly to God and pray for people, intercede for people, ask for forgiveness of people. And everybody else in Old Testament theology had to go through a priest. The second thing about Old Testament theology is this. Is a priest had the, the right, the responsibility to represent the people to God and to minister to the people and even to bless the heart of God. That they, had, they were the only ones that could do that. New Testament is this. Guess what? You're a priest. That's what he said. You're a royal priest. In other words, you're qualified. And that means you don't have to pray through anybody else. You don't need a, a mediator. Through, you, you don't have to confess your sins to anyone else. That means this. You have 24-7 access directly to God. That, that, that God says that you have a direct line now. That you have direct access. That's why we encourage you and we tell you, read Scripture. Uh, you can hear from God directly from, from the Word. You don't need someone else to read Scripture to you. You can read it on your own, and God will speak directly to you from his word. When Jesus died on the cross, there was this, there was this um, curtain that hung in the temple, and it, it separated the Holy of Holies from the outer courts and the inner and all the other stuff. And once a year, the, the priest was the only person that could go behind the curtain directly into the presence of God. And he would intercede for the people, ask for forgiveness, bless the heart of God, make sacrifices. And when Jesus Christ was crucified, the temple, in the temple, the curtain, 70 feet tall, tore from top to bottom. This says you now have direct access to God. And that's what he's saying. You're a priest. You have direct access to God. fact is, the word priest um, in Latin, means bridge builder, bridge. In other words, what it means is this. When you're a priest, you build a bridge between man and God. When you're a priest and you understand that, 
You build a bridge between people that you work with who do not know Christ, uh, people that you live with, people that you go to school with, people that you work with, that all of a sudden you are a priest and you're representing God and you're building a bridge. And not only that, a priest in the Old Testament was gifted for ministry. Lay people didn't do ministry in the, in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he says, not only that, you're a priest. You're gifted for ministry. I mean, in other words, this, every Christian is a minister. Not every Christian is a pastor, but every Christian is a minister. And any time that you're using your gifts and talents and abilities and you're serving, then it says you're acting as a priest. Watch this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. For God, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. Okay, stop right there. Uh, so God saved us and he called us to live a holy life. Some of your translations would say he called us to serve. He called us to live a holy life. So do you realize God saved you to serve? See, there's a lot of people make salvation and Christianity all about salvation. They make Christianity all about heaven. But listen, if that's all there was, then when you meet Christ, when you start a relationship with him, why wouldn't he just call you directly to heaven if that's all it's about? If it's only about you going to heaven, then why don't, when you pray that prayer, you're like, boom, you're gone. You're in heaven. That's it's not what it's all about. He called you to serve. He saved you to serve. And then he goes on and he says he did this not because we deserve it. In other words, not because we're perfect, but because he, it was his plan from the beginning of time to show us his grace through Jesus Christ. In other words, a, a non-serving Christian is a contradiction in terms. Just like jumbo shrimp. Just like hot ice. See, sometimes we make Christianity man-centered and not God-centered. God is here for us. Not that we're here for him. God is here to bless me. God is here to make me happy. God is here for me. Not that I'm here for him. God is here to bless us. Not that we're here to bless him. Not that we're here to bless his heart. We are here to get our agenda done. To get our plan done. Not that we're here for God. Not that we're here to get God's agenda done or God's plan done. See, if you're not careful, you can make Christianity very man-centered and not God-centered. And what, what Simon Peter is trying to help us understand is guess what? He saved you to serve, and he's building a spiritual house, and Jesus is the cornerstone, and we're, we're living stones, and every one of us has been gifted for ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 Paul fleshes this out and says everyone has gifts, everyone has abilities, and that we, we serve together and we work together. In other words, this, we use our gifts and talent and treasures for the church and for the body. And when I don't serve, when I don't use my spiritual gift for the church, you're cheated. You miss out. 
And guess what? When you don't use your spiritual gift for this church, we miss out. We're living stones. Some people say, wait, 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 I'm just, I'm just one person. Yeah, but we're, we're living stones being built together. Can you imagine when you go home uh, tonight and you go into your, miss, your, your, your bedroom and all of a sudden you're missing one brick in the outer wall and you can see directly outside how effective that would be? Can I just tell you this? We need you. And yeah, someone can say, well, it looks like you're getting by. But how much better? How much better would it be getting by if you were willing to be a living stone and use your gifts and your talents and your ability here? Because he says, man, you're qualified. And you know, there's a lot of people, the reason they don't serve is because down deep you don't feel qualified. Down deep you say some things like, you know, I'm just not perfect. And when I get my life perfect, when I get everything straightened out, I'll serve. Can I just tell you this? That, that day will never come. Because none of us will ever get perfect enough. You know who qualifies you? You know who qualifies me? He does. He is the one that qualifies us for ministry. It's not on performance. It is on grace. The last thing is this. Hello, my name is. Hello, my name is accepted. Hello, my name is valuable. Hello, my name is qualified. And the last one, hello, my name is forgivable. Hello, I am, I am forgiven. Here's what he said. Verse 10. Once you had no identity, once you had a false identity, once you were carrying around some labels and some names that wasn't who you were and it was discouraging you, once you had no identity as people, and now, guess what? Now you have an identity. Now you have a new identity. You're a new creation. You're a God's people. Once you received no mercy before you met Christ, now change. Now you have received God's mercy. And so he says, you have received mercy. And there's some people that don't understand this. There's some people, maybe it's because of a spiritual background you've came out of. Maybe it's because of a family that you've came out of. That you never really feel acceptable to God. That you never feel like you live up to the standards. And you never really feel accepted. And you never really feel valued by him. And you never really feel uh, qualified or even forgiven to where to the extent that if something bad happens in your life, you think, oh, God's getting even with me. You get a flat tire. You get an unexpected car charge. The boss is hard on you. Something doesn't work out in your life. And you think, oh, God's getting even with me. I miss prayer time. I miss reading my Bible. See, some of you look at God as an unpleasable parent to where it's like he's getting even with you there's a story i love the story about that guy uh was going to monarch pass he's going up monarch pass to go to his cabin for the first time in a long time started up monarch pass started to snow 
started to snow really hard. He pulls over to put chains on his car. And when he pulled over, a car slammed into the back of his car, pushes his car over the cliff, over the mountain. And he's standing there looking, and his car went over the mountain. And the guy that hit him didn't even stop, just drove off. So he started walking up Monarch Pass. and said, that's okay, I can walk to my cabin, and I can get help. So he starts walking up Monarch Pass. It starts snowing harder. It starts sleeting. It starts hailing. And he's getting angry as he walks up. And not only that, he gets close to his cabin. And he's cabin. He sees his cabin, and he noticed that in the off-season, his cabin had caught on fire and burnt to the ground. He thinks God's getting me, even with him. He's like, seriously, God, seriously, this is, this, is, this is what I get. And all of a sudden, God spoke to him, and the, the heavens parted, and God's voice, this thundering voice came out of the heavens and says, says you want to know why? Some people just tick me off. That's why. There's some of you that live life like that, that you think God is just ticked off at you, that you think he's just mad at you, that you don't live up to his expectations. And for some reason, you're not accepted and you're not valuable and you're not qualified and you're not, man, you're not forgiven. I was talking a couple of weeks ago with a, with a pastor friend of mine and uh, he was telling me a story about someone in his church is, you know, pastors do. I never tell stories about you. Other pastors do. I don't. And so he was telling a story about this lady in his church and she was coming down every week for prayer. Like, Pastor, you need to pray for me. God convicted me of this sin. God convicted me of this sin. Every week, God convicted me of this. God convicted me of this. And finally, he just got tired of it. And so she came down, and, he, and she looked at him and says, Pastor, you need to pray for me. God convicted me of this sin. And he says, I just looked at her because I felt so sorry for her. I just looked at her and says, excuse me, ma'am. Does God ever say anything good to you? Does God ever say anything good to you? To where you know, man, I am accepted. I am valuable. I am a son or daughter of God. And he has qualified me. And I have direct access to him. And he has forgiven me of every one of my sins.